Good view up here. Hmm. Wonderful as the retreat settles and the rhythm and the simplicity, we've begun to settle in. Every time it's just so inspiring um, for me to sit together. I think I'd like to just start off with something a little bit lighter. It's from David Budbill and says it Han Shan, a, a great Chinese poet a thousand years ago, said, We're all kind of like bugs in a bowl. Yep, that's right. All day going around and around and never leaving their bowl. I say that's right every day, climbing up the side and sliding back down over and over again. Well, you can sit in the bottom of the bowl and you can put your head in your hands and you can cry and moan and feel sorry for yourself or you can look around and see your fellow bugs and say, hey, how you doing? Nice bowl. Hey, how you doing? Hey, that's a nice bowl. I want to speak um, more about the 32 parts of the body practice, the benefits of this practice, and how potentially it can lead to um, greater freedom, liberation. And I know there's been in the morning, uh, seems like, um, you know, a few times, uh, still this questioning around why these parts? Don't know. (laughs) Don't know. And um, I've been dabbling, practicing with this meditation for um, nearly 40 years, 39. And, And all I can say, and this is from my practice, it's not from the books, but from my practice, To me, these parts open up the doorway to all of the different parts, systems, and so forth. Again, why these parts, I don't know. And it it feels personally important to me to use these parts since these came from an ancient, nearly 2,600-year tradition. So I want to honor that. And the formulaic patterns of the verbal and the mental and the color, the shape, the location, the direction, the delimitation. Uh, These are very ancient uh, instructions. And so it feels, to me personally, feels important to to honor that and, and where this came from. And again, these parts have led me to so many other parts. And so I, I really do want to support you all in making your own. If you're in one particular part and then that begins to, somehow there seems to be an interest moving into another, like I gave the example of my wife with her diabetes and naturally uh, coming into her pancreas, even though that's not named as a part. So I really want to support you all to um, 
go with what is calling to you. And, and of course, some people, um, they make it their own. And somehow, um, these list of parts got to a poet, a Zen poet in Santa Cruz. Her name is Wendy Yen. And so after she read the 32 parts, she wrote the 110 functions of the body. So I'd like to read it to you. It's kind of a wrap. Inhaling, exhaling, smelling, coughing, sniffing, sneezing, hungering, thirsting, licking, sucking, tasting, biting, chewing, salivating, spitting, lubricating, swallowing, belching, hiccuping, vomiting, transporting, digesting, selecting, absorbing, storing, burning, building, copying, creating, destroying, cramping, flatulating, defecating, pumping, distributing, filtering, excreting, holding, urinating, listening, seeing, blinking, dilating, crying, speaking, humming, singing, screaming, whispering, smiling, frowning, laughing, upholding, anchoring, proprioceptive, sitting, standing, balancing, walking, running, jumping, dancing, hugging, tensing, relaxing, contracting, stretching, trembling, enclosing, excluding, warming, shivering, cooling, sweating, itching, scratching, shedding, moving, touching, feeling, engorging, climaxing, sleeping, snoring, dreaming, waking, menstruating, conceiving, bearing, birthing, suckling, growing, fatiguing, breaking, aching, ailing, paining, fevering, replenishing, cleansing, hosting, engulfing, killing, collecting, repairing, clotting, blocking, swelling, dying, decaying. Hundred and ten functions of the body. So there's different lists. <laughs> so for me, I, I've made peace with these parts in their unique ways and wanting to honor these ancient uh, teachings. And again, to me, they're doorways. Doorways into all of the other parts. So I'd like to just also explain briefly different ways of practicing the 32 parts of the body. We are here doing approximately close to a week long with the practices. And sometimes it's been offered in a day long. And there's a very traditional way of practicing this, which is that it goes for 33 weeks or eight months. So the first week, for example, you practice head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin. Then the next week, you reverse it. Skin, teeth, nails, body, hair, head, hair. Then the third week, you do forward and backwards. Head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin. Skin, teeth, nails, body, hair, head, hair. Then the next week, you do flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys. You do that one week forward, one week backwards, one week forward and backwards. Now that's six weeks. Then in the seventh week, you go head, hair, body, hair, nail, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bone, bone marrow, kidneys for one week. And then you do the next week in reverse, then the next week forward in reverse. So it goes zigzagging, zigzagging, and takes actually um, eight months uh, to do this. And um, I decided, thank you, Mary Grace. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I said, hey, Mary, what do you think? You, you want, I'd like to try this 33-week practice. She said, all right. So I made a flyer, put it out. A few people showed up. I couldn't believe it. So we, we did it for, for eight months, 33 weeks. Well, that happens. I'll, next year, I'll put up another flyer. Some more people came. We did it again. So we're going into our 14th year of this eight-month, 33-week practice. The attrition rate is probably about 50%. (laughs) Uh, And people have, you know, sometimes don't know what they're fully getting into. Um, And of course, life changes, things happen. And so, um, but there's been a contingent of people all of these years that have um, participated in this. And actually some have done, they've fallen in love with this practice. This is their main practice. They've done it four or five times. So actually, I'll invite you October 2nd, Insight Santa Cruz, Wednesday night, 6.30 to 8 o'clock. We'll begin week number one. What sometimes gets people to come is usually in the first um, Friday of February. We, I have a friend that uh, is a professor of anatomy at Cabrillo College, and so we take all of our students to the anatomy lab and get on our gloves and really have an opportunity to really... Um, be with with the bodies that have been dissected and to um, hold the various organs and so forth. For some of you, that may not be a buy-in, that's a (laughs) (laughs) buy-out. But it's actually very powerful. And uh, my friend Robin, who's the anatomy professor, is she holds, um, she's a scientist, but she holds the bodies with such profound respect and awe. And, you know, we come in and we, we meditate first and then we go into the anatomy lab and it's really incredible, the opportunity. So, yeah, I wanted to just uh, share this method of these 33 weeks in practicing together and each time that we meet, we are reciting the parts mentally, knowing them verbally, beginning to penetrate into the color, the shape, the location, the direction, and what it's bordered by. This is the sevenfold skill in learning. And what I wanted to also uh, speak briefly about tonight is there's another guidance around this practice, and it's called the tenfold skill in learning. And the these This guidance is really here as ways to help refine and support our practice. And so some of it's just very helpful guidance, like, you know, the first is to, at the beginning, to follow the order of the body parts. The second is, don't go too quickly. And the third is not to go too slow. So this is good practical guidance. From, from these teachings within the Buddha. And, and so not to go too slow, not to go too fast, follow the order, to help to uh, work with warding off distractions, trying to keep your mind more concentrated, to stay with the meditation, to penetrate into the true nature of the body. I love what Christian said today so clearly that this practice in the body is really created for function not appearance. And as we know, the cosmetic industry, it's a multi-billion dollar industry 
capitalizing on our insecurities, on just the particular way how these functions have manifested themselves with their parts and so forth. One teaching within this um, tenfold skill in learning I feel is very, very helpful. Because as we develop this practice and go deeper into it, there's a, a guidance around, it's actually kind of a very interesting language, more archaic language, but it's called successive leaving. And what successive leaving means is as you begin to hone into a particular body part, you're getting interested, your energies are rising, you're, you're developing more concentration. So when that happens, successive leaving means you, be, you can begin to consciously leave out the parts that you're not as much compelled with and to move in the parts that you that this momentum, you're, you're gaining more uh, momentum and interest and um, concentration. And so that there's a sense of discerning in the practice, like something's really calling to me. And, and to stay with it. So beginning to trust that. It may manifest itself in developing deeper and deeper levels of concentration and absorption. It may evoke powerful memories that somehow I seem to be compelled to this. It may bring a sense of, of understanding of the empty nature of things, the ownerless nature of things. So the sense of discerning within our practice as our practice uh, develops there may be particular parts that I feel more drawn to and wanting to leave out other parts that there's a less drawing to. So this quality of, of successive leaving begins then to develop this other quality of, of as I've mentioned, of deep uh, development of concentration, the even developing it to finer levels of concentration, to absorption or in Pali, to jhana. Those are the first eight of 10 if you've been keeping count. The ninth actually has six aspects. And it's actually interesting. I, I just love some of the language within the Dharma. These are called the six coolnesses. The first one is that when your mind needs to be restrained, you restrain it. When your mind needs to be exerted, you exert it. When it needs to be encouraged, you encourage it. When you should develop equanimity, you cultivate the quality of equanimity. When there's resolve on the mark of freedom, of nibbana, you resolve in that mark. The last coolness is one delighting in nibbana, in awakening, in freedom. And the tenth speaks about these balancing factors of awakening, of mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. So this is all found within these, this tenfold skill in learning. But it's, it's, a, it's a, as a guidance and instruction following the order of the parts at first, not going too slowly or quickly, warding off distractions, staying with the practice to penetrate into the body, the success of leaving, of going into what's really perking your interest, leaving out what's not, and so forth. This development, the settling of concentration, and so forth. 
I also want to say that if you do an internet search for the 32 parts of the body, you may find some readings in the canonical literature and so forth about what's known as the, sometimes this practice can be referred to as, in Pali it's called an asuba practice, which means not beautiful. But sometimes that word is actually rendered into um, more stronger words, like the repulsive, the disgusting, the loathsome aspects of the body. You feel the energy of that? Yeah. yeah. I think us as Westerners already have a lot of body issues. And part of that teaching was, uh, and this has been mentioned earlier, that uh, there was a lot of male, young men that were horny, or feeling energy, wanting to live, and that this was a very powerful practice to help work with those, um, those energies. And some monks took it to an extreme level. I'm very sad to say this, but they got so concentrated into the repulsive aspect that they took their lives. And then the Buddha had to step in and said, wait a minute, this is, uh, that's going off on the deep end. So it's not meant to, um, you know, perhaps in some situations using it to cultivate the sense of uh, the not beautiful may be helpful to help curb very strong desires. But I also want to say that found within the canonical literature, the, and it's not emphasized as much, but it is there on how rather than going into the realm of the loathsome, it, it, it goes into the intersecting as you work with this practice into the elements, which is actually, when we look at the first foundation of mindfulness, there's six different practices of the body. The first foundation of the body, there's the breath, there's postures, there's the clear comprehension of day-to-day activities, there's the 32 parts of the body meditation, there's the meditation on the four primary elements, and then the meditations on on death. So there's a way that this practice, as particularly as our concentration deepens, these parts begin to break down into smaller parts, into solids, into liquids, into motion, into temperature. So we can begin to intersect and it comes actually in some ways as we practice this, it's quite natural that it begins as the concentration deepens to beginning to penetrate into the elemental nature of things. So when, many years ago, when I was reflecting on how to, what would be a a skillful way of beginning to teach, and of course within my own practice, because I also felt that by the sense of cultivating the loathsome wasn't actually helping me. I already had enough body issues, and then to, you know... um, I've never said this in a Dharma talk, I've never said this publicly, and it just came up and it feels alive. So I'm going to share it. I had a time in my life living in the monastery, I was so disgusted with my sexuality that I fantasized about getting a scissors and cutting my penis off. And 
That's a very powerful thing to say or an image to do, but there is something about my own shame and disgust in, in relation to my own type of sexuality and how I am in the world that I, I was filled with a sense of real um, shame and disgust. Fortunately, I didn't do it. <laughs> my wife will be happy about that too. And... Um, It was very healing for me to begin to approach my body with more compassion and beginning to acknowledge the totality of my being, of, of who I am, rather than trying to negate it. I tried so hard to push this away, but these forces are so strong. How do I work with these forces in a wise way, in a way that's not harming? And so I felt following the path of the loathsome was not helpful for me. It may be for some, and I want to acknowledge that. For some, that might be the way. But for me, it was like, how can I begin to reconcile? I'm not a monk at that time. I, I, I was an attendant with the monks. I lived closely with them. Particularly as I left the monastery and getting into a relationship, how do I reconcile my wholeness as a, as a male, as a person. I found that, uh, and, and pe- many people that I talked with, also I would hear such negative views about their bodies and the shame. So it felt very conscious that it didn't feel to me to follow that path of cultivating the asuba, or the loathsome quality, but to make it a little bit more neutral. And so then this notion came, why not get medical dictionary and consult? I had three physician friends of mine, and let's go through these parts and let's look at the anatomical definitions of what these parts are, their function and definition and so forth. And that felt much more objective. We just want to practice these parts, and these parts, of course, will evoke whatever it is. The other day, I was actually leading this practice. I was meditating, you know, I was offering the meditation on feces. And I was sitting with it. And then this powerful memory arose in me of two years ago with my father and he was very ill and he, he so much wanted to move his bowels and so you know we helped him to the toilet and he tried so hard but he couldn't do it. And then we helped him to get him to his bed and he never left that bed ever again. He died four days later. And so it was powerful, like just to sit, like I, I didn't know that memory was going to come. And so like this history is here inside our body. So it felt, let me, let us just stay with these parts, understand what their function, and be with the practice and what unfolds.
Uh, I feel a little shaky sharing that. <laughs> but that was the truth, though. I want to be honest. This morning, a yogi asked a question that I thought was really good. You know, how, how, what do, how, do we, how does this practice lead to freedom, to awakening? I thought it was a great question, an important question, because the other question, you know, why the heck do this, right? Why do it? I love what my teacher, Tampula Seri, said that he considered the 32 parts the most eminent of the Satipatthanas, only taught in the times of the Buddha. He had such high regards for this practice. And it's a very interesting practice because there's many different aspects to it. One is it can be a practice to develop deep absorption. You can use the colors of an object as like a casino and develop deep absorption and jhana. Equally, you can use this practice to Awaken. Insight. This practice is both personal, it is both impersonal. So it's a very weird practice. <laughs> very interesting. You went from Santa Cruz, we like it weird. I'll never forget Mary's husband, Russell. There's, there's a little bumper sticker that says, Keep Santa Cruz Weird. So a lot of people had it on the back of their car. Well, he had it on the back of his, except he turned it upside down. <laughs> I love that. But, um, you know, there's something about, this is such a, like, what? Head here, body here, nails to skin? What? So it's a good question. Why, why are we doing this? And what are the benefits? And to me, one of the most important benefits, and it's mentioned in the canonical literature, is that this practice is the, uh, can provide the gradual eradication of the view of self. No solid, separate self, and ownerless. So I'd like to just explore some of these benefits, and I want to come back to the self. So this practice also historically has been used for healing. As a matter of fact, when one of my teachers developed cancer, he, he worked with the 32 parts. And, and um, I remember once some years ago, when I was living in the monastery, a woman named Barbara Roberts came who was living with, with a cancer. And um, she spoke with the, the monks about what practice to use, and they said um, the 32 parts of the body, and, and she had um, a lung cancer, and so she was working with you know, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, and she was given a, a one-year prognosis. Well, she sincerely and faithfully worked with this practice day in and day out, and at the end of the year, she was in remission, and so she sent to her oncologist a little note, Dear Dr. So-and-so, with a little postcard, and said, Still here. Love, Barbara. <laughs> well, this went on for six years. And she swore that it was this practice that kept her alive. And then the time came after six years that her cancer had come back, and this time um, she knew that uh, she was not going to be able to survive it, but 
she experienced deep healing. And I'd like to read you a poem that she wrote about her her death, about her knowing that she was going to be di- that she was dying. This was just a few months before she died, and it's called "Of Life and Death." She says, "It's not the will to live which sustains my life, but the release from fear. I've not outwitted death, but broken free from the stranglehold of fear." At Christmas, we celebrate the wonders of birth, and at Easter, the miracle of rebirth. Well, what then of death? Without fear, death unfolds like a warm cloak of soft black wool. Death is the abyss from which all life emerges, drawn by the light. Another person who had taken practice the 32 parts, she, she writes, I've been, disemb- I've been disembodied for most of my life as a result of very early and sustained abuse by multiple abusers. The teachings on the parts of the body have allowed me to claim my body as my own, organ to muscle to veins to fluids to skin. I have removed the hands of unwanted perpetrators from the body and more from my mind. My heart is deep compassion for this body of mine that has not been mine. I have a new respect for what the body is. It is a work in progress. This is a practice for the rest of my life. This is the aspects of healing that can come through um, doing this practice. And some are kind of uh, cute benefits. One is you practicing this meditation, you can become the conqueror of boredom and delight. You can become the conqueror of fear and dread. You can bear the cold and the heat. This uproots pride and clinging. You will amass deep concentration. You will be intelligent. You'll attain absorption. You'll attain Nibbana. So those are some of the benefits of why we practice. And more. But to me, the most liberating of these teachings of the Dharma in this practice is helping us to see through these stories that have imprisoned us, that continue to feed and fuel the wheels of suffering. This is our identity. So I want to speak a little bit about this, because identity is huge. Identity is huge. For thousands of years, we have been killing each other over these identities persecuted one another over these identities, oppressed one another over these identities. And of course, this is all still happening right now. Oppression due to the identifications, the separations, skin color, sexual orientation, gender, oppression of women from males, privilege, ability and disability, so many 
many different ways of persecution, oppression, violence over one another. sociological term called ethnocentrism, which is the belief that where you are is the center of the world and everyone else is, are the savages. This is one of the things why I, I've been honored and blessed um, doing a lot of traveling around the world, doing teaching. And traveling just continues to mess with my preconceived notions of how I think the world is. Being different cultures, living with different people, and the, the world is seen in so many different ways, breaking that uh, ethnocentric view of us and them. And it is kind of exciting. I actually, um, in that news uh, today, I, I actually... Well, okay, sorry, I cheated. I looked at the, looked at the news and I saw I saw I saw Greta give a little speech, like a minute. I'm so impressed with this 16 year old, and like there's like millions of people around the world, like every continent. I'm not going to school today. I'm not going to work today. It's like unbelievable, unbelievable. Bringing you know our technology is an incredible gift in one way because it's bringing us together. We know what's happening in South America and Asia and Australia right now, and it also can separate us. This oppression that we have is based on profound ignorance and unawareness. This cultural conditioning, patriarchal conditioning. So the Dharma and identity is hugely important. And I think that when we investigate identity from the Dharma, we begin to um, look and investigate the, these filters and way that we see the world that we have identified with, which is incredibly important. And from the Dharma point of view, there's a mental process and a material process. And Pali, Nama, Rupa. Mind and body. But this mind and body is very powerful. And the first lines of the Dhammapada says that the mind is the creator of our own heaven and our own hells through our own thoughts. The power of our mind that separates us and commits so much violence and separation with one another. And so I feel it's very important that we really begin to investigate one's own identity and the filters of how I see this world and perceive it. The Buddha was a great rebel. Back in ancient India, unfortunately, this is still existing today is the caste system, but he was a rebel of the caste system. He said that, 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 that your birth did not determine your nobility. It was the evolution, the purification of your own mind that produced nobility. So this was a great interruption to the caste system because the Brahmins were considered the, the cream of the crop and the untouchables weren't even worth touching. But the Buddha was saying, untouchables, you're welcome to. Anyone has the possibility to awaken. A great rebel in this system of view and breaking through these systems. 
Unfortunately, of course, they continue on, but this is perhaps each of ourselves, our own responsibility to be aware of how I see the world and the filters of distortion that separates me from you. So the sense of, of self is a very interesting thing. And, you know, um, this is, many of us have a difficulty understanding about this teaching of anatta, the, the, there's no solid fixed entity. This rubs up against our uh, Western framework. You know, Descartes declared so many years ago, I think, therefore I am, kind of plugged down the, like, think, therefore I am plugging down this sense of identity in our Western world, but I, we're beginning to investigate where, where is this I to be found? Is it found in the head here? In the body here? In the nails? In the teeth? In the skin? There's a few facts. The body makes a new stomach lining every five days. The body makes a new liver every six weeks. The body replaces new head hair every two to five years, except for me. The body replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. The body grows a new skin once a month. The body replaces a new skeleton every seven years. I love this next one. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced by new ones all while, while I recite you this sentence. <laughs> Radioactive isotype studies show that the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than a year or so. In other words, at any given moment, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they are atoms. So if you think you're your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is um, not the same as it was yesterday. I love what Dan Siegel, he speaks about the self in this way. He says that the self is a plural verb rather than a singular noun. But even the sense of my body gets challenged. And, you know, I shared with you earlier, you know, my prostate just decided to get bigger. It didn't ask me. And the cyst in my back just happened. And, you know, like... We, we're, we're, we're really, and of course, uh, science has actually begun to, uh, there's a whole study of, uh, we're, we're actually not human beings. I'm sorry to break the news. We're actually human biomes, and we're actually about 10% human and 90% microorganisms that are hopefully working together and we can live a good life together. These human biomes, and it's very interesting, this corresponds to some very ancient teachings in the Dharma. And actually, in the Path of Purification, the Vasudhi Maga, there's a whole little section on, it's called Living with the Many. It's referring to the organisms in the body. Of course, their understanding of anatomy was not as well known and understood as it is today. But my teacher, Tangpulu Toyakabaye Seropia, he once gave 81 Dharma talks on 81 evenings, on the 81 different families of organisms that live in the body. <laughs> Who is this guy? And uh, 
like this 85-year-old guy, head hair, body hair, no skin, and then the whole these dark. So he, he had us every evening. He'd say, well, these are the ones that live in the eyes, these ones live in the nose, this one lives in this orifice, this one lives in that orifice, this one lives on the toes, and like 81 straight nights of 81 different places in the body. And, and, he, and then he would always end it in the same way, and he wanted us to memorize this in Burmese, so I still remember part of it. And it goes something like this, po aim posa, now what that means is, and this was like the refrain, every single evening we had to recite this and that, and that would be the end of the Dharma talk. And so what that meant was that these organisms that live in your body, you know, they're, they, they get hungry, they got to eat. And when they eat, you know, they got to pee and poop. And, and then, of course, they like to get partners, and they couple, and they make babies, and then gradually they get old, and then they die. And thus, your body is a cemetery. And then we'd go on to, <laughs> we'd go on to the next group on the next night. Who was this guy? I just love that. Again, pointing to this, uh, this, this body and the, 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 the illusion of separateness. You know, it's really interesting, this illusion of separateness. In Alexander Bingham says, to know that the atoms of my body will remain, and to think of them rising through the roots of a great oak, to live in leaves and branches and twigs, perhaps to feed a crimson peony, or a blue iris, the broccoli, or perhaps some of those atoms will rest on water that freezes and thaws with the seasons. And some atoms might become a bit of a fluff on the wing of a chickadee. And to feel the breeze and to know the support of the air, and some might drift up and up and up into space, stardust returning from whence it came. It is enough to know that so long as there is a universe, I am a part of it. So long as there is a universe, I am a part of it. Again, though, this teaching of non-self, this um, ownerless nature of things, it rubs up against our status, our roles, culture, our ethnicity. It's, it's downright un-American. And is it mysterious or not? That's just the question. I, I love this teaching. And, you know, the Buddha taught in the Anattalakana Sutta, this is the second discourse of the Buddha where he speaks about these marks of existence, of, of the dissatisfactory nature of things because everything is changing, and the ownerless nature of things. And the Buddha reasons, he goes, if there was a self, you could say self, don't age, don't get sick, don't die. And it's interesting, even in our Western literature, there's some references to non-self, and I found one in Alice's Adventure in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. And it said, the caterpillar and Alice looked at each other for some, re some time in silence, and at last the caterpillar took the hookah out of its mouth and addressed her in a languid and sleepy voice, who are you? said the caterpillar. 
This was not an encouraging opening for conversation, and Alice replied rather shyly, I, I, I hardly know, sir, just at present. At least, I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have changed several times since then. What, what do you mean, said the caterpillar sternly? Explain yourself. I, I, I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, said Alice, because I'm not myself, you see. <laughs> These practices can be, turn us a little bit upside down. And a number of years ago, I did a day long on the 32 parts of the body here at Spirit Rock. And one of my friends came and took the practice, took the day long. He's a psychiatrist. And that evening, he sent me a little email thanking me for the day. And he said, you know, Bob, this was really disabusive. And I got a little scared. I didn't know what the word disabusive meant, but... I began to think to myself, oh no, am I abusing my psychiatrist friend? So I had to go look it up in the dictionary. And actually, it's a wonderful word. Disabusive means that you, that you think that you see something in a certain way, and it's not that, it's like kind of like turns things upside down, seeing it in a different way. And so you could say in some ways, this is a very disabusive practice. And maybe one of the most liberating questions we could ever ask ourselves, and maybe at times a little scary, is who am I without my story? And this practice is beginning like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. To me, the story, who am I without the story, is a very important question because it actually invites the possibility that maybe there's another way of saying. And I love when the Buddha awakened, there's a very beautiful um, thing that he said, if I can find it, it's called, it's called the lion's roar. Maybe I don't, oh yeah. It says, through many a births I've wandered in samsara. Samsara, the world of birth, old age, disease, and death, and seeking but not finding the builder of the house. Sorrowful it is to be born again and again, but, O house builder, house builder, thy, thou art seen. Thou shalt build no house again. All the rafters are broken. The ridgepole is shattered. My mind and heart has attained the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of suffering. And I love this point here that my mind and heart has attained the unconditioned because what that implies, if there's an attaining of unconditioned, then it's referencing that there must be a condition. And that condition to me from a psychological place, and I think that the teachings of the Dharma is really psychological to me. It's like, it's like look, the roots of all suffering is these aspects of greed, hatred, and ignorance. And to me, what the Buddha is saying, the experience of the unconditioned, he began to see through the conditioning fueled by greed, hatred, and ignorance that was causing all of the profound suffering in the world in his own heart. And when we take a look as we sit with ourselves, we're seeing all the time our conditioning. And, and yes, our history is here inside our body. Our body is our storehouse. And all of this type of conditioning is beginning to arise. 
So there's that personal part and the impersonal, but that conditioning is huge because that conditioning is what is fueling our sense of us and them, you and me, white and black, Republican and Democrat, all these polarities, these conditionings. And some of these conditionings, depending on how we've been brought up, are conditionings that really do not serve our health and our well-being. I have an, an old friend. His mother committed suicide. His father was a retired army officer and they had four sons and growing up, it was very intense, difficult times. And my friend was very tall and kind of clumsy. And so his father get, used to get annoyed and he used to call him a name. So that name was King Minus. Everything you touch breaks. That's the opposite of King Midas, the children's story of where everything you touch turns to gold. Imagine being called that. And, and how that can affect, particularly in early parts of life when we're beginning to develop that sense of identity. And all of us have been in our lives, we, we've developed an identity and hopefully now that we're mindful, we're beginning to see the identif- identity that we've uh, individuated into and maybe the rest of our life is to unindividuate that individuation in a much more healthier way. But these early stories and woundings begin to solidify our sense of identity. When I was young, my grandma, I'd go visit, we'd go visit every week and she knew that I liked peanuts and she'd put a bowl of peanuts on the table. And I'd go there and say hi to everyone and I'd go get some peanuts. And my uncle, Sidney, began to notice this and for some reason he thought it was funny. You know, I'm, I'm just a little kid. And after a while he would make an announcement when we came home, he'd say to everyone, hey, here's coming the claw. Here's coming the claw. Here's the claws coming. And, you know, I didn't have I don't have claws, I have fingers. But there was some way in how that he said this, I began to feel so humiliated, so shamed. And I decided I I was not going to get the peanuts anymore. I don't know whether he realized it or not, but uh, unfortunately I know that I have fingers and I'm okay and I still like to eat peanuts. But, but, but you can tell, like, like some of these things that we're told to us, shaming, we begin to, I, we don't know any better, we're developing our sense of self. And that begins to become our identity. This to me is the most powerful aspect of the Dharma and the teachings, is beginning to become aware of these identities and maps beginning to see that I've been held hostage by them. That's not all of me. It's only with awareness that we can begin to make some changes. Margaret Wheatley says that I know what we notice because of who we are. And we create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once if this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created and we self-seal And we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can begin to look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance of changing. We can break the seal. We can notice something new. This difference between self-awareness to the habitual pattern and conditionings of self-referencing. 
Some years ago, I worked with a woman out of the country, and she was told, she said to my wife and I, that ever since she, she could remember, her mother used to say to her, I wish I never had you. Imagine that type of thing. Felt so unworthy. During this retreat, she was really working with this grief. And she began to become aware that, in her, she, and she, didn't have, she never put this together before. In her, in her entire professional life, she was a nurse midwife, and she's helped assist the birth of thousands of babies. And it began to dawn on her, well, you know, maybe, maybe I am okay. <laughs> it was the beginning, it was an opening like that. When these identifications happen at such an early age, we begin to see the lenses of this world in this way. Children, they're taught to hate. And the violence multiplies more violence. The beautiful teachings in the Dharma, only love ceases hatred. Hatred never ceases hatred. Only love ceases hatred. It begins first inside ourselves. Carl Jung says, I can feed the hungry, forgive an insult, I can love my enemy, these are great virtues, but what if I should discover that the poorest of the beggars, the most impudent of the offenders are all within me, and that I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. What then? Because this conditioning within us was learned. And I want to remind us all, getting towards the end, I want to remind us all that at one point in our lives, we experienced a sense of sovereignty. We didn't need approval. We didn't need acceptance. I think maybe that's why we love babies and infants because they're just so themselves. You get a baby sitting up here with me and it's size to vomit as I'm giving the Dharma talk, and baby don't care, just <laughs> Wants to fart, it'll fart. Wants to have a bowel move, it'll do a bowel move. Wants to pee, it'll just pee out. Wants to laugh, cry, babies just being baby, because that's what baby does. And perhaps that's why we love them so much, because they're just so themselves. They have their own sovereign nature, and yet in our development as we grow up, being hurt, being shamed, being humiliated, hopefully being encouraged, hopefully to help develop confidence is a mixed bag. But this identity that we formed into, and perhaps keep on perpetuating if we're not aware, and as we become aware, we can begin to see these identities. Perhaps they're not held so um, like cement that we, th we once thought they were. There's possibilities of us to heal. This is why we practice. <laughs> this is why we practice to awaken, to awaken to the the, this dream world of our identity and our place of separation has caused so much pain and suffering to so many of us, to all of us. And, and you know, um, we were born in this sense of wholeness. We were inside a womb and everything was just wonderful and then we just got too big and we had to get out. We were born, we were, but we came from a place of connection 
And then that powerful moment in our life when that cord was cut and we became separated. Perhaps this is the journey home. And, you know, my mother's 90 now and I just can't fit back in here. I'm going to have to find my wholeness another way. And I think the great discovery of the Buddha was it's not outside. It's inside. Mm. Who goes inside awakens. Where is this happiness to be found? Is it inside? Is it outside? Beginning to see through these distortions, misconceptions, fueled by our fears, by our looking for approval, our so many things, to see through these stories and perhaps coming to a place of awakefulness. And many people feel like, oh my God, if I'm awake, will I just be some enigma or something empty? So we'll just end with a short meditation. This will be instead of the chant. And this is from my teacher, Tampulu Toyekabayesero, the World Peace Forest teacher from Ghost Mountain. And so he said that this is a wonderful practice to have a taste of awakening as well as a wonderful practice to die with. So I was mentioning about these cankers or these aspects of suffering, of greed, hatred, and ignorance. And so in this particular practice, it's really simple, but very beautiful. And it gives us a little taste of an awakened heart. So as we breathe in and breathe out, in the place of grasping or greed arising, there'd be a place of just contentment, just here and now, just in this moment, that there's nothing that you need Nothing to push away. And this breath in and the breath out, the, the, the greed or the wanting dissolving and in its place arising, it's a sense of contentment and ease as we breathe in and breathe out. Continuing with the breath in and breath out and this falling away of hatred, aversion and in its place, the, the open, compassionate heart of loving kindness arising within as you breathe in and breathe out. The falling away of hatred, the great heartfulness. Lastly, with the falling away of ignorance or not seeing clearly, the falling away of unawareness gives rise to awareness, gives rise to clarity, gives rise to wisdom, gives rise to the understanding of the causes of suffering and the path to freedom.
causes of suffering dissolving with the greed and the hatred and the rising of clarity, contentment, and open heart. This is the awakening of those that have awakened. All beings dwell with peace. Thank you. And this is a beautiful practice to work with and it really can give us a taste of an awakened heart. Contentment, open-heartedness, this clarity, the understanding, the wisdom of the causes and the end of, of suffering. It's accessible. It's available. It's right here. Thank you and have a, a good evening and um, continuing with the practice you like. Of course, the hall is open and we'll see you in the morning. May you sleep well, have pleasant dreams, and wake up refreshed. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.